Good morning, everyone. Grace and peace. Well, it's good to be together. Uh, I suppose we're all catching up on the earthquake and all that. Did everybody feel it? It was awake. You, were you asleep? No, I'm awake. And you didn't feel it. It was a little after 10. Yeah. Billy's really very sensitive. I'm not, I'm not, not very sensitive guy. Yes, I do. I think. Well, so just, just to remind you that whenever you're, you're studying the scripture and you come across an earthquake, that's really a signal to you that God is like changing the status quo. Uh, like especially getting the book of Revelation and uh, my favorite my favorite earthquake in the book of Revelation is when the saints are praying and the angel comes and takes the uh, the uh, the coals from the uh, altar of incense which represents what the prayers of the people right Pastor and the angel takes the the coals from the the altar of incense, which represents prayer, and then takes the, takes them, and they she uh, the, the the angel casts those coals into the earth. So think about that: prayers being cast into the earth, and then there's an earthquake. That the prayers of God's people. Right, we are centered and rooted in God, changes the status quo. Now that's an earthquake, right? Psalm thirteen is a psalm that longs for an earthquake. It longs for something to be different, and something is going to be different when we turn the page to Second Samuel chapter one today. Saul is no longer in the picture. And like David has been running from Saul for like 30 years. Is that about right, Kurt? Mm -hmm. 30 years. Somebody's been trying to kill you for 30 years, and now that person is dead. How are you going to respond? How are you going to react? Psalm 13 um, could have been one of those psalms. I think we prayed this before uh, in our Bible study, but it's a a psalm of lament. And psalms of lament are those psalms that help us to recognize the pain and the suffering and the difficulty that we are in now. And it's like necessary. Lament is, and we are not good at it. We just want to get on to the next thing, right? And we don't, we don't kind of deal with that which is causing us the hurt and the pain. We just want to move on. Well, David was really good about dealing with it and, and articulating it. And so as we kind of make a move, and David is actually going to have a psalm in Second uh, Samuel here really early. So that's why I thought it would be good for us to begin with Psalm 13. Let's pray together. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. 
My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Will we begin 2 Samuel chapter 1? And let me ask, how do you think David's doing? Got his wives back. Got his wives back. Kept his little army together. Hopefully you know a little bit more about the guy, right? He what? He needed some rest. He's been busy. Yeah, did a lot of killing. Good guy, bad guy. Who's David? He's just a guy. He's just a guy. <laughs> yeah. Would you make him a friend? <laughs> well, that's an answer. <laughs> Would you want him to be king? <laughs> That's a very good answer. Yeah, it depends if from the north or the south. Well, as Steve said, we've finished our uh, elementary school, and now we're, we're moving up into the big leagues, right? David is now going to have to be in charge. He doesn't have somebody to blame. It's up to him what's going to happen. So we start in 2 Samuel, and it's sort of funny to keep in mind, the only reason this is a second book is because the papyrus couldn't go any longer. So there's only so long they could make scrolls, and then when they get done with that, then they start a new one. So it's really just the continuation of the story. It's just on a new scroll. And so when they start that, they continue it. You actually see it with the Gospels too. as They put in as much as you can. Like when you were in college, right? And the professor said, write 10 pages. Did you write 12? No. <laughs> you wrote 10. And that, that's exactly what you wrote. So it's scary to think some of the biblical books are that way too, right? It's just, this is, this is our length. But Kurt and I, Kurt still does it. Uh, we read ordination papers for people preparation, preparing for ordination. And we had to say 10 pages because we were getting 80 pages from people. Who wants to read 80 pages, Kurt? And not what they were writing. This is crap. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway. Yeah. Well, we pick up right after the story. Verse 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from his victory over the Amalekites and spent two days in Ziglag. Remember, David is way down south in Judah on the border with the south, the Negev. And instead of fighting the Philistines, he's been down there beating up on a gang. The Amalekites, these are nomads, desert dwellers. On the third day after David's return, a man arrived from the Israelite battlefront. He had torn his clothes and put dirt on his head to show that he was in mourning. So remember the average person, nearly all people, owned the set of clothes that they were wearing. So that when you tore them, and you couldn't really just sew them back easily, uh, this was a great sign of mourning. Uh, this was you attempting to separate yourself from this event that happened. Just real quick, I want you just to circle Saul's name or, or highlight it, and then circle the word Amalekites. When you read those two names together, 
that should do something like in your mind. Uh, it should take you back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Remember, Saul has two massive failures that lead to his like spiraling downfall. Um, he, is, uh, he is told to wait on Samuel. Um, and when Samuel gets there, then Samuel will make the sacrifice. People start to scatter. And so he takes matter into his own hands and he makes the sacrifice. And no more than he makes the sacrifice, who shows up? <laughs> Samuel, to do the sacrifice. Um, the other massive failure is that uh, Saul was told to completely destroy the Amalekites and all everything. No, no gold, no animals, no nothing. Completely destroyed. He saved some of the plunder and spared the king's life. And it was all over then. And so, one of the things that one of the things that you'll notice as we continue through David's story is that uh, David seems to start cleaning up Saul's messes. And so, when you see Saul and Amal and Amalekites, it's like, hmm, how's David going to respond to this? Is he going to rise to the occasion, or is he going to fall down? Something to ponder. We'll see what happens. So there really is, like Steve said, a blood feud between the Amalekites and the Israelites. The Amalekites are descendants of Esau. If you'll remember, there's two twins. One twin, Jacob, leads to Israel. And then his older brother, Esau, a man named Harry, has several sons. Included among them are the Amalekites. So they're Hebrews, but they're not Israelites. But there is incredible bad blood between them. When the Israelites first came out of Egypt, the first group to attack them were these Amalekites. The Amalekites are always sort of like the anti-Israelite. When God said wipe them out, there were very, very good reasons. Uh, we don't have time to go into it all today, but I'll just throw it out there. One of the descendants of these people is a guy named Herod. Does Herod have an impact on God's plan in the future? What would have happened if there had been no Herod? So it, it really matters. Uh, God was trying to eradicate this group. But So one of these Amalekites shows up. He tells David, uh, or David asks him, where have you come from? I have escaped from the Israelite camp, the man replied. What happened? David demanded. Tell me how the battle went. The man replied, our entire army fled. Many men are dead and wounded on the battlefield. And Saul and his son Jonathan have been killed. How do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead? David demanded. The young man answered, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. I saw Saul there leaning on his spear when the enemy chariots, uh, which is interesting, with the enemy chariots closing in on him. When he turned and saw me, he cried out for me to come to him. How can I help? I asked him. And he said to me, Who are you? I replied, I'm an Amalekite. So it's a bit unusual that an Amalekite would fight with an Israelite army. He's got to be some sort of mercenary. So remember, these are kind of gang people. These are nomads. And so they would perhaps lend themselves out to be to mercenaries. But it's unusual. He's in a, a drafted Israelite army. Anyway, then he begged me, come over here and put me out of my misery. 
for I am in terrible pain and want to die. So I killed him, the Amalekite told David, for I knew he couldn't live. Then I took his crown and one of his bracelets so I could bring it to you, my lord. All right. Does this seem strange? What did we read at the end of 1 Samuel, how this went down? Yeah, how did Saul die, according to what we read before? Yeah, he committed suicide. Uh, so much so that it inspired his armor bearer to also commit suicide. Jonathan and his sons were killed earlier, or other sons were killed earlier in the battle. And so, what's going on here? Is this more to the story? Maybe when he fell on his sword, he didn't completely die? Is someone lying? The, the Bible is, is sort of throwing this out there so we get into the nebulous place that we have to live. Again and again, God wants us to be like him and be able to decide. Who do you believe? Do you believe what happened before that described to us that fell on his sword? Or do we have this guy who may have taken advantage of the situation? Uh, he certainly picked up the what? Yeah, that's a nice chunk of precious metal. And I came here to uh, <clears throat> get a new job, David. So who's who's telling the truth? What do you think, Steve? Yeah, it's a... Uh... It's a uh, interesting quandary. I read something yesterday that uh, maybe Saul, like Kurt said, maybe not have been dead and may have been suffering and had propped himself up on his spear. I do think it's interesting that the spear always... Again with the spear. It's always resurfacing, right? And so maybe he's on the ground and he's propping himself up on his spear trying to relieve pressure. Uh, But nonetheless, it's pretty clear that there are some negative, well, what we would perceive as negative motivations on the part of this Amalekite to do what he did and to uh, hopefully that he's going to find. I think he's making the assumption that, that he is going to become the hero in David's eyes. That's what I think is happening. And he greatly misjudges David. Because he doesn't have the the backstory and how many times David has constantly spared Saul's life. As desperate and as disappointed and as crushed in spirit as David must have been over those 30 years, he is not going to be the one that kills the king. Right? And he doesn't want anybody else to kill the king either. And yet here this guy comes basically confessing to the murder of the king of Israel. So it's a a messy, messy situation. Verse 11, David and his men tore their clothes in sorrow when they heard the news. They mourned and wept and fasted all day for Saul and his son Jonathan. The ones that delivered Saul's body Remember that we from Beit Shan they snuck and got Saul's body back. How long did they fast? Remember? A week. A week. <laughs> How long did David's boys fast? <laughs> the 
the rest of the day. But uh, they, they still are remembering that this was the king, this is a bad thing, this shouldn't have happened, uh, God's anointed has died, uh, but it's not uh, the, the length that some others are missing Saul. For the Lord's army and the nation of Israel, because so many had died that day. Then David said to the young man who had brought the news, Where are you from? I am a foreigner, an Amalekite, who lives in your land. Were you not afraid to kill the Lord's anointed one? David asked. Then David said to one of his men, Kill him. So the man thrust his sword into the Amalekite and killed him. You die self-condemned, David said, for you yourself confess that you killed the Lord's anointed one. All right, we went from mourning and sorrow and spiritual to kill him. What? Uh, remember the Egyptian? Remember the slave that they find uh, when they're chasing the Amalekites? What does David do with this guy? He's an Egyptian, another enemy of Israel. What did David do for him? Gave him food, fed him, nursed him back to health, promised him, you'll be fine, we'll, we'll let you go, you're okay. David being incredibly merciful and kind, and it, it serves him well. The Egyptian leads them to the Malachite village, and David has victory. So on the one hand, so merciful. Here, and you'll see a pattern with David here. He usually does this, right? Kill him. David's always got a boy that, that's going to whack somebody. Very rarely will you see David do it. In fact, except for Goliath, I can't think of anybody that David kills himself. He's always got somebody else there to do it. But here's the big question. Was, was David fulfilling, uh, like Steve said, fixing the, the mistakes of Saul? Or did it just make David angry? But what do you... I don't know. What do y'all think? I think he's angry, just impulsive. Yeah. 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 Seems like it. It does seem like that this uh, this phrase is repeated. It's like I. You could, you could like maybe think think through David's inner thoughts there. I refused to lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. And I suffered for it for like 30 years. And this guy, this punk Amalekite, who is the sworn enemies of Israel since the days they came out of, he just, just like, to try to curry my favor, kills him? No, I'm not going to put up with that. And so I think, think you might be right, Billy. Say that again. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. He's literally washing his hands of the last Amalekites. Oh, yeah. come on in. Go yeah, ahead, very, sit down. Huh? Very good point. Don't very mind the plastic. Yeah, yeah. Don't, yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't forget that. That's who he's been fighting while Saul and the Israelite army is up north fighting the, the who? The Philistines, David had been sent by Achish, right? Achish down to the south, as far away as he could go, to fight the Amalekites. And so it's like, yeah. 
good, good, good point. And to be fair to David, the the slaughter that he inflicted on them really shuts the Amalekites up. We will not hear from them again until the reign of King Hezekiah, which is about a century in the future. So it's uh, it, he; those four hundred that escaped probably were all that were left. Unfortunately, they weren't wiped out, but. Yeah, I did, a, I did a search here of all the uses of the word Amalek, Amalekite, or Amalekites. And there's, there's just 50, 50 hits on those three words. And you see, when you get to Samuel, they start to get pretty heavy concentrated. And then after 2 Samuel 8, there's, you know, in Chronicles, that's the same timeline. And so you just they just drop off. And so maybe that's the point. That David finished what Saul should have done all along. But David relied on the ephod. Remember when he was concerned about what does God want me to do? Where does God want me? Uh, well, he didn't ask that. He just asked, you know, am I going to win if, if I fight the Amalekites? Yes. There was no ephod here. There was no prayer. I'm not saying the Amalekite was a good guy. I, I think it's very nebulous as to what he did because it's supposed to cast a shadow over this man's character. Uh, he probably, I think, is lying or not telling all of the truth. But David really causes us, I think, to look into the concept of anointed, right? This is super important for us as Christians. Why? Why is anointing important for Christians? What does the word Christian mean? Anointed. So Christos is the Greek word for Mashiach, which is Messiah. And Messiah is the word they use here. Messiah is the person anointed. Usually when Christians talk about it, we think of the Messiah, HaMashiach, the one that was anointed to save the world, to take away the sins of the world. But biblically, there are many, many messiahs. God anoints, literally covers with the first of the oil, the holy oil, different people for different functions. So Saul was anointed to be king, so he's a messiah. David is a messiah because he's anointed to be king after Saul. The priests are messiahs. Saul was a messiah. Everybody has this anointing to go and do what God intended for them to do. I believe we have anointings to be like Christ, to be the men that God has called us to be. So when David says, don't you have any qualms about killing God's anointed one, that raises some interesting questions. Who did Saul slaughter? Who? Well, I'll just say that the priests, right, that helped uh, David slaughtered them. They were the Lord's anointed. So there really is a big difference between the way David treats this anointing and the way Saul was treating the anointing. Saul only saw his gift from God. And even then he was doubtful about it. Where David is maybe a little more respectful that other people have callings from God. That's a good place to be when we think about the unity we were trying to talk about on Sunday. 
God calls us to be the body of Christ. We have different functions. But as you receive the Holy Spirit, as you live your life, you have a purpose, a function, an anointing from God. And that's sacred. You need to strive for that. You also need to not screw somebody else's up. Uh, you, you don't need to attack or squish or, or push or destroy or, God forbid, kill. So David, for all of his lines that he crosses, he really does seem to respect this one. And of course, it's significant because the line of the Messiah, the ultimate Messiah, comes through David, who himself was anointed. So, does that make sense? Every time I do that, people think, what are you, what are you saying there's many messiahs? Uh, because that's what it says biblically. But there's only one, the Messiah, intended to save the world. So, and, and similarly, you'll occasionally hear somebody say, after Kurt preaches this powerful sermon, oh man, Kurt was so anointed today. <laughs> right? It, it, it's, not, it's not a proper use of the word that somebody who shows these exceptional skills and ability, that they are the only ones anointed. I mean, no, everybody in the body of Christ is anointed. We are little Christ. It's another way that Christian is, is, uh, is oftentimes communicated. We are little Christ to do the work of Jesus until he returns. So in any study that you do in the Old Testament, watch really two words, salvation, which is the word Jesus, and anointing, which is the word Messiah. All of those really do lead us to the Gospels. But to try to finish up with this, we have the two sides of David's heart here. He has just in pretty much cold blood killed another Malachite. And then verse 17, then David composed a funeral song for Saul and Jonathan. Later, he commanded that it be taught to all the people of Judah. It is known as the Song of the Bow and is recorded in the book of Yashar. So a lot to unpack right there. He, David's remembering Jonathan, which I'm glad. I think we talked about Jonathan's a good guy. He really is. David wants the king from the north to be remembered in Judah, his territory. Now this is surprising. Usually when a new king comes, especially if you're a change of dynasty or change of family, you don't want anything to be said about the previous guy other than he was a rat. We didn't like him. He was an idiot. David is being merciful and kind. He really is in his actions honoring this anointing that came before, even maybe at the expense of his own political stability. So again, just kill the guy and then being kind to his enemies just a couple of verses later. Song of the Bow. I don't know why it's called bow. Uh, Jews have wondered about that for a long time. Uh, I don't know. And also this book of Yashar. The Bible does this to us several times. There are other things, other historical sources that they borrow from that we do not possess today. Yours truly would love, love, love to find this someday in a scroll uh, just to see what it has. There's several of these throughout Scripture, like I said. Um, now, if you get on Amazon today and you type in Book of Jashar, Jashar someone's going to sell you one because everybody has been looking for these, right? 
And so people in ancient times have written them. Uh, we don't have the actual one. We have some that were written in Greek. That would be a bit unusual, wouldn't it? Since it's not really a language when we're writing yet. So it's all a bunch of garbage, the, the one that you'll see out there today. But isn't that fascinating? The Bible doesn't forget to footnote. Um, and maybe someday, if God wills it, we'll find it in a cave somewhere, and we'll have some uh, new printing to do in our Bibles. Uh, that would be interesting if we found it. Would we include it in Scripture? Right. Uh, I think probably yes, but who knows? Kind of like we know that Paul wrote a letter to the Laodiceans. Right. I mean, we know it. I mean, he says it in Colossians. Uh, so if that ever shows up, we're going to include that in the Bible? I would say that one probably has a great argument for yes. Right. So So why don't we call it right there before we get into the song. And again, it's so surreal. The first half of this chapter is David assassinating the messenger because he brought bad news. (laughs) And then the rest of the chapter is a wonderful psalm, a song that David wrote. Uh, Talk about a weird combination, sweet and sour. Yeah. As soon as I get this blood off my hands or you get it off the floor, I'm going to finish writing my sonnet to God. Well, that's great. So, questions? So how do you feel about David? Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't it have felt better if David would have would have said, "Let me inquire." After he hears this news, let me inquire of the Lord. Lord, do you want me to kill him? And then God gives the answer. But he doesn't do that, right? And it does seem like he kind of go, goes when David's at his worst. He's not inquiring of the Lord. That's right, right. And so, another lesson for us today. Uh, we really are trying to encourage us to pay attention to what we're afraid of, right? A uh, couple of weeks we've been trying to encourage our church body to, to pay attention to that. What are we afraid of? And uh, then going with this past week, what, what role are you playing in pulling people together? Right? In, when you're out and about in the community, are you part of ramping things up? or getting people to maybe look at things a different way. And all of that, dealing with our fear and and being a a person who unifies and brings peace, certainly takes inquiring of the Lord. Right? So that would be my challenge to you this week. For whenever you notice others who are upset, who are struggling uh, with all that's going on uh, in the world, Man, that you be the one that inquires of the Lord, God, how can you use me in this moment to bring peace? That's the challenge. And do you have any Amalekites in your life? God bless you guys. I know we're hopefully learning some names, Philistines, Amalekites, and they become more than just weird biblical names. They become people that we know. So do you know any Amalekites in your life? My mom and dad owned a home in Rio Doso for a number of years. And Rio Doso's changed a lot. You guys know that. A lot of California weirdos moving in. 
and they see the deer. Oh, they love the deer. The deer live in their yards and their pets, and they, oh, they're so sweet. Well, there was a lady in the, the subdivision, my parents had their home, that took that to the nth degree, right? She was feeding deer, she was feeding squirrels, she was feeding raccoons, ugh. and then she started feeding bears. Because love, nature loves her. She has a special connection. What happens when you feed a bear? And what happens when you stop feeding the bear? <laughs> exactly. There are Amalekites, bears, in our world. There are people that have completely gone off the range. Uh, they are people, and you know them, right? You need to stay away from them. You don't need to wish them harm. You don't need to wish them dead. You don't need to order them killed like David. But you need to stay away from them. You certainly don't need to feed them and make them part of your life. Part of being who God made us to be is choosing who we're around. There are times in which it's hard to hear from God and you can go to others and they can give you good advice. But if you're surrounded by Amalekites, they're never really going to have good answers for you other than, hey, let me maybe kill somebody and take the crown and try to get credit for it. So at least in this stage, David was good. So it's probably your in-laws that you're Amalekites. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I better pray. <laughs> Father God, we thank you for the reality, for the in-depth way you present David's life to us. You have said without a doubt that this is a man we should watch. This is a man we should learn from. This is a man who had something within him that you liked, that you said was like yourself. But we know wrapped up in all of that, he was a man much like us, prone to mistakes, prone to getting angry, prone to going back to those mistakes again and again. Father God, we take comfort and a lot of fear from the fact that it was never easy for him that at the end of the day, he had to make choices. May we learn from the time that he went to you, talked to you, looked at your word, remembered the words of Saul, Samuel, remembered who he was to be. May we follow in that same step, O oh Lord. We've got to make our choices, but we need to make them with you. So help us to see the Amalekites, to see the anointed, and most of all, to feel your spirit within us. May we be found faithful. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Grace and peace.